Thank you to Florence and her team for leading us in worship. Whoops, almost lost everything here this morning. Thank you for leading us in worship. And it's good to be here in the house of the Lord this morning and to, uh, uh, to be enjoying a little rain and cool weather. You know, the rain, the rain comes and the Bible often speaks of, of rain as a, as a healing and rain as, as a refreshment. And often it's speaking of, of it in terms of refreshing our souls. Uh, but uh, I think I'm, I'm feeling even a physical refreshment with the rain we've enjoyed over the last uh, couple of days. And as we, as we enjoy this rain too, I was thinking uh, even uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 45, um, Jesus says He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends His rain on the righteous and unrighteous. And as we enjoy the rain, as we enjoy this weather that we're having, we can remember that this is a, this is a, a God's blessing on us, on all of us, uh, not just uh, uh, those of us who are His followers, but this is His blessing on the whole world, and so we can enjoy this blessing. Well, that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to think about the book of Jude and... Uh, the passage that was just read. You know, when we, when we go through life, you know, it, it often seems like um, our life breaks down into two camps, one or the other, and you, you see this especially in the, in the media and in movies. You know, there's always the good guys and the bad guys in the movies. And, you know, uh, you, uh, you, you, you can pretty much, after a few minutes of watching a movie, you can pretty much identify who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And you know what's going to happen in the end, don't you? What's going to happen in the end? The good guys win, right? Like, I, I mean, if you really step back from it and look, you, you know how the movie's going to end. And once in a while, and I remember watching a movie on an airplane once, and it was a very, it was a very strange movie. I don't even remember the name of it. And, and there were no good guys. There, it was just a, it was just a movie full of, of, of bad people doing bad things. And in the end, everybody suffered. And I thought, well, that was, it just left you with a, with an uncomfortable feeling because it was just like, this isn't how movies are supposed to go. And I suppose maybe even that had some value in it. But, you know, it's usually good guys and bad guys and, the good guys, the good guys win. So here, when we come to the book of Jude this morning, and we look at this, we see that there Jude talks about, in a way, the good guys and the bad guys. And uh, we don't often turn to the book of Jude. We, it's, for, it's one of those books that's that's there. If you try and find it at the in your Bibles, you'll find it there. Uh, just before the book of Revelation, and often we're, we're, we're skipping through, through trying to find where the book of Revelation begins, and uh, we just sort of skip over the book of Jude. And so I, I thought, well, let's, let's take a minute and this morning and look at something and see what the book of Jude has to say to us. So we don't know, it's not a book we often go to. It's not something we, we, uh, we, we, we do, when we do when we do our Scripture memory. It's not one of those books that... Uh, we pull a lot of verses out of to, to memorize, but there is something of value in that, in the book of Jude for us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there in the Bible. Now, who was, who was this fellow Jude who wrote the, this book? Well, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but generally we, we believe that Jude was actually the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Joseph was his father and Mary was his mother. 
Uh, Jude gets a Matthew uh, gets a, a mention in the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 13 verse 55. Uh, Jude is is mentioned along with uh, Jesus's other brothers. In John chapter 7 verse 5, we also read about him, and it tells us that he was not a believer at first. In fact, Jesus's own family, his his mother, uh, seemed to understand who he was, but his brothers and sisters uh, didn't really accept him. And so, uh, he wasn't a believer at first. We're not sure when in his life he came to that point where he realized who Jesus was and, and who his half-brother was and what he had come to do, but he does believe in the end. And uh, he believes along with James, another one of Jesus' half-brother, who we also have uh, one of the books of our Bible who was written by James. And so, we have these uh, Jude as one of Jesus' half-brothers. So, he was actually someone who knew Jesus himself very well. He grew up with Jesus. You know, when we look at our, when we read our Bibles, we read a little bit about Jesus and his childhood, a, a bit about his birth. We get a tiny little bit of him as a as a young boy. We get that one instance of him being left behind by his parents. But but what was he doing for those other thirty years? Well, he was with his family. So his brother, this Jude, had known him, had grown up with him, had. Uh, had uh, uh, seen Jesus as his older brother, and so he he knew uh, he knew Jesus very well. Now it might seem strange. You might say, "Well, why doesn't Jude identify himself as Jesus's brother? Why doesn't he ever say that?" Well, um, you know, because you can see Paul recognizes uh, who Jude was in Galatians chapter one uh, verse nineteen. Um, uh, he he talks about Jesus's uh, 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 he talks about Jesus recognizing that that, that these that that the, Jesus's brothers were there. He says he's talking about James, but John said, or Paul. Sorry, getting all these names confused here. Paul says in Galatians one nineteen, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And so Paul recognized that he knew who James was. Presumably, he knew also who Jude was. But James himself doesn't say, you need to listen to me. I'm Jesus' brother. And I think that's probably why Jude and James don't say that. Because they don't want to uh, sort of abuse that position that they have. They don't want to go around saying, look who I am. I'm Jesus' brother. You need to listen to me. It would be sort of putting themselves up and saying, you know, almost saying, you know, we need to be the ones in charge of the church because we're Jesus' half-brothers. So you need to, to really listen to us. So I, don't, I think they're just being a bit humble and saying, no, that's not who we are. Uh, we're just... Uh, and Jude starts off his, his letter and he, he simply says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So... He identifies himself actually as a brother of James, not as a brother of Jesus. And he's a servant of Jesus. So he wants to make sure that people understand he's not there abusing his authority or using his relationship to Jesus to, to put pressure on. But he's saying, no, I'm just the same as you. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so that's who we have as, uh, uh, as, as the author of this. This letter. So he writes this letter, and he writes it in, in Jude uh, verse one. He says he writes this letter to those who have been called and are loved by the by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. So he's writing this to the believers. He's writing this letter to the 
to the church somehow. Now then we, we move on to, to, uh, to verse 3. And he says something very interesting. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So it's interesting. You get a little insight into the, the working of, of God through His servant Jude. Jude starts out and he says, I should write a letter to the church. And somehow he says, I think I need to write them about the salvation we share. And then God works in his heart, works in his spirit, and says, no, this is actually what I want you to write about. So Jude seems to have thought, gone, sat down to write this letter with one thing in mind, and when he actually did it, he says, no, I really need to talk to you. I really need to write this letter to you about something else. And so he goes on and he explains. Uh, for, well, first of all, he says, yes, we share this, this salvation. Um, but then he goes on and he says, this instead, what I need you to do is to contend for the faith. So he was eager to write about the salvation that they shared, what they had in common. But then he says, no, what's more important is I need to encourage you to contend for the faith, to stand strong and be uh, uh, to, to be uh, strengthened in the faith. Why does he need to do that? He needs to do that. They need to do that because there's some false teachers have come in among them. Some false teachers have come in and are spreading a, a false gospel. And he uses some pretty strong language to, to describe these persons. He says uh, in verse 4 that these false teachers, these are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. So he says, here's, here's a problem. We've got these false teachers that have come in. And so he goes on and he describes and he takes the next, uh, uh, what we have uh, the next few verses, the next few sentences there, to describe these false teachers. And they, uh, they have apparently been turning the grace of God into a license to sin. Paul also faced that. And he says, he says, should I sin more so grace should abound? Absolutely not. We should not be doing that. And here, that's what they seem to have been doing. They've been saying, seem to say, I'm free. I'm under grace. I'm, under, I'm not under the law anymore. So I'm free to do whatever I want. I don't need to be uh, I don't need to be under uh, keeping all those laws anymore. God's grace is sufficient for all my sins. So let me sin so much so I can enjoy God's grace even more. And as they say, Paul addressed that. And now Jude is addressing that. And he says, no, that's not, that's not right. And he calls them godless men. They've changed that grace. The idea of grace does not mean that we can go forward and we can sin and do whatever we want. He says, no. That's just, uh, grace is not a license for immorality. And then he says that they are uh, denying Jesus Christ. So these are some of the things of uh, the false teachers that are there among the church. Now, Jude then goes on and he, he, he explains these things and he, he talks more about what these, these false teachings are. And he goes into some interesting passages and he talks about uh, the, the devil fighting with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. And he gives a quote from 
uh, a non-biblical book, a book, uh, the book of Enoch. And these are things that are interesting to study, but not really uh, important for us this morning. Uh, but interesting features of the, the book of Jude. But what I really need to get at here is, what does Jude say that Christians, how, they, how should they respond to the false teachers around them? And so that takes us to the end of the, 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 the letter there. And he says, but you, dear friends, build yourself up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, these are things you should do in response to the false teachers. So he starts his letter and he says, this is, this is what I need to write to you about. Contend for the faith. And then he goes on to describe the false teachers. And then at the end of the book, or at the end of his letter, he says, now this is what I want you should you to do. So he says, here we have on the one hand, the false teachers. On the other hand, this is how I want you to be living. This is the way you Christians should be living. This is the way you people of God, those, he says, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, this is the way I want you to live. These are things that you should be doing. So we have this counterpoint. On the other hand, this is how you should be. Here are the false teachers. This is how you should be. Now, where are the false teachers today? In, in Jude's day, the false teachers were in the church. They, they'd come into the church. I'm not, I'm not sure that we need to have false teachers in our church today. We have them outside of our church. But somehow they are inside as well. Who I, I don't want to spend the morning throwing stones at people, but you know you, you look at people like Oprah Win, Winfrey. I'm sorry, Oprah, but she says she's a Christian, and we listen to her and we absorb all she has to say. There are other preachers and teachers out there, popular names in the media, who are not teaching the truth, and we absorb it. They are in us. In it, they are in the church in a way because they are saying we are part of the church. We are Christians, but they're not really teaching the truth. And we have these ones, people like Oprah, Dr. Phil, and they are big influences on our life. And they don't need to come into the church. They don't actually need to come here and physically sit in the church here on a Sunday morning with us. We let them in. We let them into our homes through the internet and through television and through the books we read. And we say, come, I want to hear what you have to say. In this day and age, they don't actually need to come here and be present with us. In Jude's day, they did. Because how else were these false teachers going to get a hearing? They had to actually physically go into the church and speak to the church. Today, we let the false teachers in. We need to be careful. And we, because, so they don't need to come. So we don't need to look around and, and look at the person next to the, next, sitting next to you and say, is that one a false teacher? Is that one a false teacher? We don't need to do that. They might be, there, there might be false teachers in amongst us, but, but it's much easier for them to gain access into our lives through the media. And I think that's where, uh, that's where the, the false teachers today are coming from. And so we need to be just as careful and we need to respond the same way. And so Jude says, he, 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 he starts out talking about the first, about the, the, uh, uh, the people he's writing to, to the Christians. And then he says, I need to tell you about these false teachers. And so he says, and, and then we're, we're left with the question, well, what should we do with them? Well, you know, you might, you might think that he, he, he'd say, well, we should, we should go and we should, 
and, and the church did this. It's at, at some point in, in history, they, they said we should go out and we should kill all the false teachers. Well, no, he's not, Jude is not saying that. Should we, uh, uh, should we go out and try and strike them all dead? No, we, sh- we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do that. Should we bring the church leaders from Jerusalem and have them come and, and sit with, with, these, with these false teachers? No. What's the antidote for false teachers, Jude is saying? He says, live out your faith like a true Christian. It's pretty simple, really. Just be a genuine follower of Jesus. Live your life the way Christ wants you to live. Pay attention to the things that Christ says. Don't focus on the false teachers, but focus on Christ. And then he says that's how we're going to counter the false teachers. And so this is his encouragement to the church of his day, but then also to us today. How should we live? And so the first thing he says in, uh, that, that we're looking at here in verse 20, uh, so we're looking at verses 20 to 23, and he says, uh, he says, but you, dear friends, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep it yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So he says, first of all, there's four things, four things I want you to do that are pretty much just internal. That are pretty much just the way you should uh, uh, be living the kind of attitudes you should have, just the things that that you should be doing. Then there's then he gives you three things. He says this is how you interact with others around you. So the first uh, the first four. Sorry, I'm I'm confusing our, our PowerPoint guy here. Um, uh, you got it now. Um, the first thing he says is build yourself up in the faith. Build yourself up in the faith. He says um, build yourself up in your most holy faith. This is not someone else's job. To build yourself up in the faith is not the responsibility of anybody else but yourself. Now, some you might, you might be saying, well, isn't that what we hire the pastors for? Pastor Don and Pastor Gilbert, isn't that your job to build us up in the faith? Well, we can provide opportunities for that to happen. We can create... Uh, places and spaces and times where you can come and you can be built up. Where you can be challenged. Where you can be encouraged. But we can't actually do it. You have to do it. It's your responsibility. You might come and you might say, I need help. Well, we can help. But ultimately, it's, it's your responsibility. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing Jude could do about it. But he says you have to take responsibility for it. You know, it's kind of like a, a fitness program. You know, if you decide to, that, that today, you know, you, you, you kind of look in the mirror and you say, I need to get in shape. And I probably could do that if I was honest with myself. I'd probably say, I probably could get in shape. So I can say, Christopher, I need you to go to the gym three times a week for me. I need you to start eating less because I need to get in shape. So Christopher, I want you to do this. He'd be like, yeah, I can do that, Dad, but it's not really going to help you, is it? And it's like, sure, I'm, I'm, I want you to do it for me. And it's like, no, it's something that you have to do for yourself. And in the same way, in your spiritual life, it's some, you have to take responsibility for it for yourself. Are you not growing in Christ? How is your spiritual walk? How is your walk with God? Are you growing in Him? 
Whose responsibility is it? It's yours. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not praying, whose responsibility is it to make sure you do those things? It's yours. So it's good, it's great that you come to church, Sunday schools, fellowship groups, but the response, you, those things are all helpful. But only if you say, I'm going to take these things to build myself up in the faith. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul uh, gives us this encouragement as well. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, he, he, Paul talks about, about the same thing. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation. Continue to understand what it means to be saved. Continue to try and understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what I want you to do. Paul is saying, I'm not going to work it out for you. You need to work it out for yourselves. Work out your salvation. There's great benefit in doing it for yourself. Just the way exercise only helps if you do it yourself. Understanding who we are in Christ and growing in Christ is important that we do it ourselves. So we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and understand what God has done for us. So we build ourselves up in, the most, in our most holy uh, faith. The second thing he says is pray in the Holy Spirit. This is just a, a quick reminder here. We've been talking a lot about prayer in our uh, Sunday mornings for the past few weeks. If you've uh, been here and been paying attention, you will have caught that theme running through the last several weeks of, uh, of uh, our Sunday morning messages here. And here, just a, again, an encouragement to pray uh, in, the, in, the, in the Holy Spirit. Uh, let God lead us in times of prayer. And it's not prayer that we're praying to impress other people or praying uh, to uh, impress God, but simply spending time with God, talking to God. And that's who we need to, to focus on. We don't spend, our, and, and in the context here of, of, of Jude, of this letter to, uh, that Jude wrote, the, the, we don't spend the time uh, talking to the false teachers. He says, no, you just pray. Pray to God. So sometimes we pray hoping that our wonderful, uh, eloquent prayers with these beautiful, flowing words will bend God's will to meet ours. Often that, so often that's what our prayers are. We say, God, you know... God, You are the Holy One of Israel and you go on and on and you make this wonderful flowery prayer, but I want You to do what I want. And that's not, uh, that's not what God wants. Uh, we just think that if we, uh, if we ask in the right way, God will do what we want and that becomes our prayer. Or maybe we're thinking that God, if we just pester Him enough with our prayers, the way a small child pesters their parents and just keeps... Uh, bugging them and asking and asking and asking and they, the parent gets so irritated they give in and they say, okay, you can have what you want. Forget it. Just, uh, just get away from me. You've irritated me enough. And maybe we think that's what our prayer should be like is just prayers until we irritate God so much He gives us what we want so that we will stop bugging Him. But that's not what our prayers should be like. 
No, our prayer should be more like the way Jesus prayer, prays. And Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Teach us how to pray a very simple prayer. He gave us a, a very simple way to pray. And even Jesus Himself um, prays a very simple prayer in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Uh, as Jesus is coming up to His crucifixion, <clears throat> He says, he says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, <clears throat> if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus doesn't, he, he spends that, that, that evening in prayer, but when it comes to this most crucial thing, he makes it very simple, short and direct, expressing his own desire. Yeah, he says, I don't want to do this, but if that's what you want, God, I'll do it. And so that's his, a simple prayer. And that's what, um, what Jude is asking. Just pray in the Holy Spirit. Then the third thing we see there. He says, keep yourselves in God's love. Keep or abiding ourselves in God's love. Abide, wait, and rest. And, and just stay in God's love. Just focus on God's love and His love for us and what He has done for us. He says, don't... He says, take the attention away from the false teachers. Just focus on, on God and Him, Him alone. You know, in our day and age, one of the things we, that, that's become a bit of a problem in the church is what we call celebrity cults. We, the church has somehow um, probably stuck out as being very Christian, very uh, orthodox, very uh, focused on Jesus. But slowly, the, the, the churches seem to gain some momentum, these big churches. And they, 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 uh, they grow and they grow. And the, the, the preacher, the, the, the pastor, the senior pastor of the church gains more and more prominence in society. He starts to write a book. Sometimes it's even a she. They, they write a book. They go on TV and, and then people, somehow there's a slow drift away from being Followers of Jesus to being followers of the pastor. Followers of the leader of uh, the church instead of the one who is the real head of the church, Jesus Christ. And he says, just keep yourselves in God's love. Don't follow uh, those people, but keep yourself in God's love. And this is a, a, a hallmark or the test of of a, of a Christian is love. In John 13, 35, um, uh, John says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, he's talking about love for one another, but love somehow is a, is a real hallmark of, of what it means uh, to be a Christian. And as God's love is in us, then, that, then we will extend our love to one another. And the Gospel of John talks a lot about this, this love. Loving God, loving Jesus, loving one another. And they all fit together. We can't say that if we love... We can't say I love a God, but I really don't like... I hate the person next to me at church. It doesn't fit. It all, our, our, our love all fits together. As we love one another, we will... We will, we will learn to love God. As we learn to love God, we will learn to love one another and even... Love ourselves as well. So we need to 
remain, to stay, to be rooted in God's love there. Uh, paying attention to God. Loving one another. And taking that time to, uh, to really get to know God. And listen to what He has to say. Then the fourth thing He says that uh, uh, we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus and we're waiting for that eternal life that comes at some point down the road. But waiting is hard for us. We don't like to wait. We want to have everything right now. When you go to Amazon, you want priority. Uh, you want to be on uh, Amazon Prime so that you can get your book in, in, in one to two days instead of waiting that, that eternity of five to seven days for the regular shipping. That's just too long to wait, you know. We, uh, you know, for those of you who are a bit geeky like me, you know, we are waiting for Windows 10 to come out. Anybody waiting for Windows 10? Oh, come on, be honest. I know some of, some of you get that, you're getting that little notification and you're going, I can't wait for July. I wonder if I'm going to be one of the ones who gets the release on July 29th. You know? How long am I going to have to wait after July 29th to actually be able to get that release? Those of you who are a little older and been around computers a little longer, remember the, the early versions of Windows? Remember having to wait for those? On the little floppy disks, you got about 15 of them and you had to plug them in and then you wait, and wait for that one and then plug the next one and it seemed like an eternity. We don't like to wait for these things. We don't like to wait. We don't like somehow um, waiting is hard for us. But here he's told we just wait. Waiting is a good thing. We wait for Jesus Christ to come and take us to eternity. Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-seven and twenty-eight. He talks about that same kind of waiting there. He says, it says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear, appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Waiting is an important part of our Christian life. We're, we need to wait for Jesus. We can't expect everything to happen immediately, but we need to to wait. And so he wants us to wait. So there's the four things he wants us to do uh, that are really uh, internal. Uh, that that uh, uh, we build ourselves up. We pray. We, we, we wait in God's love and we're waiting for Jesus. Those are the four things that are internal. But then Jude gives us turns and he gives us three things that we should do that are outside of ourselves, that impact others. And these are the, he uses very interesting words here. The first one he says is, is be merciful to those who doubt. And so this is the first thing we do. This is how we interact with others. Be merciful to those who doubt. Uh, and that's, a, that's an interesting sort of thing because usually when someone doubts, we just hit them over the head with the Bible and say, no, don't doubt, just believe. You know, don't, don't ask, stop asking so many questions. Don't you know the Bible says you just, just believe? We just, we just want to, them to believe. We don't, we don't want to get bothered with all the detailed explanations of why. We just say, just, just believe. We, we, we're doing it with the right heart. 
we, we do want people to believe. We, we, we don't want people to sit in that uncomfortable place of, of having some doubts. Um, but we can help them gently and with mercy there. Uh, a theologian from Africa by the name of Takumbo Adiemo said this about this verse. He said, We are often impatient with those who disagree with our viewpoints and outright unkind to those who doubt what we say. We allow no room for dialogue or reason. He's speaking pretty harshly to the church there today. And I think this is what Jude is saying. Be merciful to those who doubt. You know, it's not enough for us just to simply say, just believe, don't doubt. But we need to try and help people understand and deal with their doubts. And we had a wonderful seminar a few weeks ago um, with Dr. Anderson that, that helps in those sorts of regards to understand what the Bible says so that we can really believe and believe and understand in a deep way. We shouldn't be afraid of doubters because if we're honest, don't we all have a little doubt? Think about Thomas, one of the disciples. He doubted. And, and what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, you know, just throw him out. You know, just excommunicate him from one of the twelve. He doubted. No, Jesus says, look, come and see and touch me and feel me. Get over your doubts. I think we're all probably like a little bit like the father of the demon-possessed boy that uh, gets a mention in Mark chapter 9, verses, uh, verse 24. He says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that an honest reflection of how most of us feel? I believe, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. I think that's probably how we all feel at times. We all live with that tension. Yes, I believe, but there is always a little bit of unbelief. Let me give you an example of how maybe that works out in life. You know, we read about uh, uh, well, we we read about people being raised from the dead. Of course, we read about Jesus. Of course, as an example of someone who was raised from the dead. But you know, Peter in Acts chapter nine, verse forty and forty-one, raised Tabitha from the dead. Paul in Acts chapter twenty, verse nine and ten, raised Eutyches from the dead. Paul had. Paul had put him to sleep with a long and boring sermon. He'd fallen out of a window and fallen to the ground dead. Paul went out and brought him back to life. Remarkable, amazing things. Would we ever have the courage to go to someone who's passed away and pray for God to raise them from the dead? Why? Do we doubt? Do we doubt that God has the power to do that? If we say, yes, I, I don't believe God can raise, and raise people from the dead, then you'd say, what about Jesus? What about these two that are recorded in the book of Acts? God raised those from the dead. You go, well, I don't know. I don't know if I would pray for someone to be raised from the dead. And I can honestly say, I'm not sure I would ever have that kind of faith. I know a, a good friend of mine um, wrestled with that. And just uh, a man of great faith and a, a great prayer. And he said, you know, I don't know if I could ever pray that prayer. 
Why? I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I don't know. Maybe that's an extreme example, but that's just that's just a, a, a an extreme example that we can go to where we can say, you know, even I'm not sure about that one. So when we come to others who are facing moments of doubt, let's not judge or yell and scream or belittle them, but let's show them mercy and help them to understand. Then the next thing he says there is, uh, after be merciful to doubt, snatch others from the fire and save them. And so he gives us that image of, of the, the, those who don't believe in the fire and we need to, to rescue them from that. And so we need to do that. We need to uh, be taking time to share the Gospel with others around us with the goal of bringing them to Jesus so they, they can find grace and mercy as well. And this is the experience for everyone who has come to faith, isn't it? That, that someone has taken the time to, to explain to us uh, the Gospel so that we could be saved. And uh, our friend, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.21 uh, he tells us how people were saved through the preaching of the Gospel. And he says the Gospel was, was foolishness to those. And yet, uh, the, yet people came to Christ. The Gospel sometimes doesn't make sense to those around us. And yet he says, no, this is what we need to do. We need to snatch others from the fire and save them. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 uh, gives us a, a glimpse into the importance of this. That, uh, that this, was, this, is, this is important, not just to us, but it's important to God as well. He says, the Lord is not, is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so, Jude says, this is a, a, an antidote to false teaching. Just go there, preach the Gospel. Let God do His work so that people can be saved. I once had a colleague that I worked with in, in, a, in a ministry uh, many years ago. And his sort of life motto, it wasn't a life verse because you can't find it in the Bible, but his life motto um, was, save them or offend them. And he was so bold that he made me uncomfortable. He was so bold in his witness that he would, just everyone he, he met, he would share the gospel with them and he didn't care. You know, if they responded great, if they were offended by him, he didn't care. And so he said his, his goal in life was to save them or offend them. And I thought, wow, okay, I can't, you know, I can't adopt that one for my, for my own sort of life motto. You know, that some, it resonates with some people maybe. But he was so concerned with people hearing the good news of Jesus and having that opportunity to respond that he didn't care. He said, if people go away from me, angry, hating me, I don't care because I know I have done my bit in trying to save them. Wow, that was a challenge to me. I'm not sure, that's, I'm not, I'm not sure about the, the effectiveness as, a, as, a, as an overall church strategy, whether we want to adopt that for our evangelistic approach. We're going to be so bold as a church here. We're going to offend everybody in Vancouver or we're going to save them all. Maybe it works on, a, on an individual basis with certain people, but it's a challenge, isn't it? Save them or offend them. But he's saying this is what we need to do. 
That's what Jude is saying. This is what we need to do. Show mercy, but make sure people are saved. And we need to because we're snatching them from the fire. We're snatching them from death. It's important. Then the last thing he says is show mercy to others mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted faith. Show mercy to those in sin. And this is the last thing he says here. He says, like, you know, like the doubters, we need to show mercy to them. Sin is a very tricky, very difficult thing to deal with at times. But it says we need to show mercy, but also mixed with fear. And not that we fear that one who is, uh, who, who that we're, we're wanting to show mercy to. We don't need to, to fear that, that person. That's not, I don't think that's what he's saying. We need to fear that sin. Because it's very easy for us to get tangled up inside of that sin as well. So we need to be careful. We need to, to approach that with a little bit of fear and trembling lest we get caught up in that too. You know, I've heard about, um, uh, about ministries that, that, that go into, into bars and, and they, they actually have Bible studies. So a group of people go into a bar and they have a Bible study in a bar hoping to attract those, those patrons of those sorts of places to them. Without... Uh, because generally speaking, as a, it's a pretty broad generalization, but the people who hang around Saturday night till, till the bars close at one or two in the morning aren't the same people you're going to find coming to church on Sunday morning. So, in order to reach those ones, we need to go where they are. That can be a dangerous thing for some people. Instead of, instead of being salt and light in the world, what ends up happening sometimes in those sorts of things, you end up uh, moving into that uh, other sphere, you need to be you need to be careful. Another thing you, I can think of is you know in 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 various places uh, uh, you'll find ministry to prostitutes. You know the people who can go into that sort of lifestyle and that subculture and effectively interact with it and yet not be drawn into that sort of lifestyle. It's not for everybody. We need to be careful about those things. God bless those people who can do those and stand strong for the Gospel even in those sorts of situations. But we need, all need to be careful and say, okay, I need to, to reach that one, but I need to be careful that I don't get drawn into it. And we need to show mercy. We need to show mercy there to those who are in sin. To try and Rescue them from that. And King David in Psalm 51, verses 1-2, to he cries out for mercy on him, a sinner. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David was one who was very aware of his sin. And he comes and he says, Have mercy on me, God. And so we say, uh, how do we show mercy? How do we show mercy to someone in, uh, in, in sin? One writer said, has described mercy like this, and he says, true mercy is actually off-putting because it allows us to feel loved and challenged to grow at the same time. Mercy allows us to feel loved and challenged to grow at the same time. True mercy 
does not just let us off the hook and say, well, I'm just going to ignore your sin. It, it's, 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 it doesn't matter to me. But it also it doesn't do that. It, it, it sees the sin and, and it addresses it as well and then encourages them to move on to another place. Not just saying, well, I'm just going to ignore the sin. That's not showing mercy. That's just ignoring something. And so we need to show that mercy. So here are the things that, uh, that Jude says. These, these seven things. The four inside of us. The three that are outside of us there. Uh, and this is how we address false teachers. They are out there. Even today, the false teachers are out there. And so, on the one hand, you've got the false teachers. On the other hand, here are some ways that Christians should be living in order to counteract those false teachers. We need to be aware of those false teachers around us. We need to try and identify them and, and use uh, some discretion and use some discernment into the messages that we hear. And then how do we respond? These are some ways that we can respond. Jude is concerned about the church and about the influences that are in the church and outside of the church that are bringing these false messages. We need to identify them and we need to respond in just the same way that he did 2,000 years ago. When we do that, it helps us to counter false teachers because when they come along and they give us a message, we can say, no, that's not the way. I know a better way. I know the, the way that Jesus wants me to go. I know the way the Bible teaches us to go. And here are some things here in the book of Jude that tell us how to respond to false teachers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for all that it has done for us and all that it teaches us. And Lord, even for the challenge of uh, listening to and hearing about false teachers, Lord, help us to respond in a way that can uh, build up the church, strengthen ourselves, and speak life into the lives of others. We pray that You would use Your Word to help us this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.